Blog Talk Radio. The Four Persons, Inc. is a federally registered and licensed 501c3 charity. Any use of any of our content without our permission is prohibited by law. Our purpose is evangelization, education, and social action. Please go to our website at thefourpersons.com or our blog site at thefourpersons.net to make your tax-deductible donation by credit or debit card. You can also send a check to The Four Persons, Inc., P.O. Box 11214, Manassas, Virginia, 20113. To contact us, send us an email at email at thefourpersons.com. Welcome to the Catholic Ken Apologetics Show on the Four Persons Network. This is our weekly Friday morning show with Catholic apologist Ken Litchfield. To call into the show today, the number is 515-602-9655. That number again is 515-602-9655. And now, let's welcome our host Ken Litchfield. Good morning, Four Persons Radio Show fans. This is the Catholic Ken Apologetic Show with me, your host, Ken Litchfield. We have a great show planned for you today. We will be discussing how do we know that Jesus is God. If you have any questions on this topic, feel free to call in at 515-602-9655. If you'd like a copy of today's show notes, you can send me an email at catholicken at thefourpersons.com or I'll have them posted to our website. I am also available to come speak at your parish on this or many other topics. And you can contact me at kenlitchfield 61 at gmail.com or look me up on Facebook. So let's get started. How do we know Jesus is God? Jesus is the Son of Man who transforms our ordinary humanity into something supernatural and extraordinary. When did Jesus say he was God? He did say it eventually when the high priest confronts him, demanding, Tell us plainly, are you the son of the God are you the son of the most high God? Jesus answers him by saying, I am and you will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven, which is the name of God dating back to the burning bush with Moses. After that statement, Jesus is crucified for blasphemy. He has many other titles in the New Testament that are foreshadowed in the Old Testament. The title Messiah, God's Anointed One, Emmanuel, which means God is with us, Eternal King, 2 Samuel 7, and Son of Man. In each of these titles, Jesus is claiming to be God in an Old Testament Jewish way. He is revealing himself as to 
us as the fulfillment of the Jewish scriptures. He is the one they have been waiting for. Many recognize this and follow him, and many others do not. The Son of Man title or concept is found in several places in the Old Testament. In our first readings last Sunday in the book of the prophet Daniel in Ezekiel and in Genesis, the name Adam means man. The first man was simply named man. There is a curious statement made about God in Genesis chapter 3. While he is speaking to the woman and the serpent, he says, I will put enmity between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will bruise his heel. In this translation of the Old Testament, the son of man, Adam, will crush the head of the serpent. This is amazing. Jesus is the Son of God, and therefore he's divine. He descended from Adam in the line of humanity, Son of Man, whose kingdom, as therefore Jesus is a king, will be established forever, as promised to King David in 2 Samuel chapter 7. And who is God among us, Emmanuel, born of the Virgin, as foretold in Isaiah, he is God and will accomplish all things. Our lives are in his hands. Despite being the all-powerful God, he came personally and intimately to be close with us and among us, to be like us in all things but sin. The story of feeding the 5,000 is an extraordinary account of Jesus' superabundant providence for each of us and all of us. He was given very little and he made it a great feast for all. And there was still a lot left over. Wouldn't it be great if we could do that at the grocery store, just buy a few groceries and have them last all week? And this account of feeding the 5,000 is found in all four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. It is the fulfillment of the story of Elisha the prophet, who multiplies loaves in 2 Kings chapter 4, verses 42 to 44. In the Old Testament, by God's power, which is Jesus' power, we might think of this story not so much about loaves and fish, but about the message for us in life. Jesus comes to fulfill this and to show us that he will magnify our gifts and our efforts. He has superabundant grace and mercy to give each of us. We can't imagine what he can do with those who believe. This is a great exchange that benefits us most. We give him what little we have in our tank, our loaves and fish, and he gives us the superabundant treasures of heaven. Our loaves and fish come in different forms, like our energy, our time, prayers, gifts, and talents, etc. He wants us to try and persevere till the end. He will magnify what little we give him and make us bear super abundant fruit. Through baptism, we become members of the body of Christ. And 
as members of the body of Christ, we are we receive God's grace and do things as a member of the body of Christ by his grace for his glory. We're not hidden by Christ. We are actually members of his body. So the works that we do are his works done in the real world, in our earthly world, for him. And this is an important basic concept for us to understand how our works are connected to Jesus and how Jesus works through us. We don't work so that we can go to heaven. We work because we are members of the body of Christ. And Jesus calls us to be fruitful and multiply his works through us. So we offer him ourselves as a member of the body of Christ and allow Jesus to work through us for him. So how do we know that Jesus is really God or just a great teacher or rabbi? Some other people that others point to uh, to compare Jesus to are Muhammad and Buddha, but neither of them ever claimed to be God. They just passed on their teachings, and Muhammad claimed that his teachings were from God. Jesus also passed on his teachings, but he also claimed to be God. That's the difference between Jesus and Muhammad and Buddha and any other non-Christian religion. Jesus actually claimed to be the Son of God and therefore is God. Now, some C.S. Lewis was a writer from the 1800s, and Lee Strobel is a more current writer, and they ask this question about Jesus. Is Jesus is either a liar, a lunatic, or the Lord? Because Jesus could have been a crazy man going around claiming to be God. However, he performed many miracles at first in secret and then later on in public. So this is evidence that, you know, not only that was Jesus claiming to be God, but he showed it by doing miracles. Jesus healed people of diseases and deformities. He transformed water into wine. He multiplied bread and fish at least twice, as recorded in the Gospels. Jesus could be lying, but many people witnessed his miracles and were willing to die for that witness. And that's another important thing that, you know, people will believe things, but how many people are willing to die for their belief? If you want to be a Christian, you have to really believe in God and you have to really be willing to die for that belief. Jesus could be lying, but many people witnessed his miracles and were willing to die for that witness. Jesus is Lord because not only did he perform great miracles, he also rose from the dead, which is something Muhammad and Buddha didn't do. The fact that Jesus died and was resurrected is recorded by the Roman historian Tacitus and the Jewish historian Josephus in the first century. 
So this is not a new thing that was invented later on, that Jesus rose from the dead. It was already known in the first century and already re already recorded by non-Christian historians. The Romans and Jews could never account for the empty tomb where Jesus had been laid. And you can still go visit that tomb today. Jesus' resurrection was witnessed by women, his disciples, and over 500 other witnesses. And Jesus' resurrection is recorded within five to ten years, which is historically too short for, of a time for a myth to develop. The Bible records that Jesus' resurrection is witnessed by women, you know, in our modern times may not mean so much, but at the time of Jesus, uh, a woman's testimony in court was considered half the value of a man's testimony. So by recording the witness of women in the Bible, we're using our weakest possible uh, witnesses at that time. Now we understand that, you know, the witness of women and men are of equal value, and even children can give the honest truth because they don't know about lying. Although children can also be good storytellers too, but so are adults. The apostles and many other Christians willingly died rather than give up their faith in Jesus Christ. Their unshakable conviction caused many other people to become Christians. Christianity was illegal for over 250 years, but continued to grow year after year. There's a saying from the first century that the blood of the martyrs, those that were willing to die for the faith, is the seed of the church. And people would come to recognize that there must be something really important about Christianity if these Christians are willing to die for that faith. And we are willing to die for the faith because we know that our goal is to get to heaven. It's not to have fun or live a happy life here on earth. When we get the idea that our goal is to get to heaven right, then we know why we need to be willing to die for the faith. Another piece of evidence that Jesus is God is that the church that Jesus founded is still here 2,000 years later. To begin with, first we have to establish if there is a God. The God of Christianity is that which existed before time and space and therefore exists outside of time and space. God is the first cause, the one who started everything before time and space. That is the God of Christianity. Now, because God is outside of time and space, he cannot be measured. But we know God exists because everything else we can sense does exist, and it had to come from something. You could think of God as the source of the Big Bang. Some people try to get around the Big Bang theory 
of the origin of the universe by proposing that there are an infinite number of previous or parallel universes that keep regenerating themselves. None of these previous parallel universes can be measured, just like God cannot be measured. Others propose the beginning of the universe developed from a subatomic ether or quantum field. Neither of these theories allow for the development of something from nothing. They still require something to start with. You can choose to put your faith in God, universes proposed by science that cannot be measured by science. There are more than 10 parameters that must be finely tuned to get the universe that we have today. The theory of evolution can't account for the great leaps forward of the in the Cambrian period, and this suggests intelligent design, not mere evolutionary chance. So those that try to get around the existence of God can come up with all kinds of wild theories on how everything that we have here could come to exist, but they all have to start with something. And the one of the rules of science is that you have to be able to duplicate your original experiment. And they can't duplicate that original experiment. They can just theorize about it. And they haven't found any other, any other evidence that shows how this actually happened. It takes just as much faith to be an atheist as it does to be a Catholic. And since being a Catholic Christian is more logical than being an atheist, I choose to be a Catholic Christian. The Old Testament scriptures predicted Jesus. We know Jesus would be of Jewish descent, therefore was the seed of Abraham. In Genesis 22:18, we are told that through Abraham's offering, offspring, all nations on earth will be blessed. Christians believe Jesus is the fulfillment of this promise. We also know that he would be from the line of Jacob, Abraham's grandson. In Numbers chapter 24, verse 17, it says, I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star will come out of Jacob. A scepter will rise out of Israel. From Isaiah chapter 11, verse 1, says, We know he is from the line of Jesse, the father of King David. A shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse, and his roots, a branch, will bear fruit. The Spirit of the Lord will rest on him. From Jeremiah chapter 23, verses 5 and 6, we know he is from the line of the King of David. The days are coming, declares the Lord, and I will raise up for David a righteous branch, a king, who will wise, reign wisely and do what is just and right in the land. This is the name by which he will be called, the Lord, our righteous Savior. Affirming that Jesus is from the line of King David, 
we have this prophecy from 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 12 and 13, which is, was actually spoken by Samuel to King David. When your days are over and you rest with your fathers, I will raise up upon your offspring to succeed you, who will come from your own body, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. From the prophecy of Micah, chapter 5, verse 2, we know that he was born into the tribe of Judah in the region of Ephrathah, in the town of Bethlehem. But you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from of old, from ancient times. And from Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14, we know that he was born from a virgin. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son, and you will call him Emmanuel. This name, Emmanuel, means God with us and indicates the divinity of Jesus. That Jesus would be worshipped by the shepherds from the desert and that foreign kings would present gifts to him is revealed in Psalm 72, verses 9 and 10. May the desert tribes bow before him and his enemy enemies lick the dust. May the kings of Tarshish and of distant shores bring tribute to him. May the kings of Sheba and Seba bring him gifts. May all kings bow down to him and all nations serve him. When Jesus was born, King Herod slaughtered a number of children in an attempt to kill him. This is predicted in Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 15. A voice is heard in Ramah, mourning and great weeping, Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because they are no more. In response to this attempt on the life of Jesus, Joseph is warned in a dream to take Jesus to Egypt, where they stayed until Herod died. This is predicted in Hosea chapter 11, verse 1. When Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. Most of the Old Testament was written in Hebrew. One exception is Daniel 7.13, where the Son of Man was written in Aramaic. And the Aramaic word is Bar-Anasha. Every other instance of the Son of Man in the Old Testament was written in Hebrew. Ben Adam, as in the son of Adam. While Hebrew and Aramaic are related languages, the words are different, which means the Son of Man in Daniel 7.13 is completely unique. In an English translation, Daniel 7.8.13 is translated as son of man. 
in Daniel 7, the Son of Man is presented as a divine figure in the heavens. All the other references to the Son of Man are references to humans, like Adam, Ezekiel, and Daniel. When Jesus uses the phrase, Son of Man, he is referring to himself as God, not just as the Son of Adam, like a regular human being. The phrase, Son of Man, is used 88 times in the New Testament. Jesus refers to the Son of Man in Matthew chapters 12 and 13, Luke chapter 12, John chapter 1. Stephen uses the phrase, Son of Man, as he is being martyred in Acts chapter 7. Now, in the early years of Christianity, there were many people that had different ideas about Jesus being the Son of God or God and whether he was God from the very beginning. Since Christianity was illegal at this time, it was difficult for the church to hold a council and settle this for the whole church. We find in Acts chapter 15 that they held the Council of Jerusalem to decide whether the old Jewish ceremonial and kosher laws applied to the new Gentile Christians, and they decided that it did not. And since the first Christians were Jews, the way they settled theological disputes amongst the Jews was the local Sanhedrin and the great Sanhedrin would get together and work out the doctrines of Judaism. And the first Christians, being Jews, did the same practice. And the Council of Jerusalem, you know, handed down a decision that was shared throughout, throughout all of Christianity by authorized people to let us know that the old kosher laws and the ceremonial laws of Judaism didn't apply to the Gentile Christians. However, just like back then and now, some people resist the decisions of councils. And the Jewish Christians were continuing to try to push the Jewish works of the law on the Gentile Christians. And that's why Paul writes in so many of his letters that we're not saved by works, which is the Jewish works of the law. We are saved by faith in Jesus and by God's grace. And, of course, God's grace comes first because God pours his grace out on everyone. And we have to respond to God's grace and turn to him and profess faith in Jesus. And if you have children, parents can give that faith in Jesus to their children through baptism, just like the Jews gave their faith in God to their children through circumcision. The great advantage that baptism has over circumcision is that baptism can be given to boys and girls, but circumcision can only be given to men, because only men have that part that needs to be circumcised. So 
Christianity became legal in 311, well, actually, in 311, it was no longer persecuted by the Roman Empire. It was another allowed religion in the Roman Empire. So in 325, they held the Council of Nicaea. And Nicaea is a smaller city near what would, would later become the city of Constantinople, but it was under construction at that time. And many Christian bishops and priests came to meet there to work out this uh, heresy that was very common at the time, proposed by a priest named Arius, Arius. And it is referred to as the Arian heresy. And what Arius proposed was that there was a time when Jesus was not. He was willing to agree that Jesus was the firstborn of all creation, but he proposed that there was a time when God existed and Jesus did not exist. And he pointed to many different writings in what was later to be assembled as the New Testament scriptures, uh, in that Jesus is the firstborn of all creation, which in an in our human terms, you know, would seem to indicate that there was a time that Jesus did not exist. Uh, Arius didn't require people to think that, you know, Jesus, the Son of God, didn't exist until he was born of Mary. But he insisted that there was a time when Jesus was not. And it was a popular... Uh, little promotion phrase that they had at that time. There was a time when Jesus was not. And yet the true Christians, you know, insisted that Jesus was co-eternal with the Father. And the Council of Nicaea is where the beginning of the, what we now call the Nicene Creed, was developed. And when they held this council in 325 AD, two-thirds of the and priests that attended this council were siding with Arius on this idea that there was a time when Jesus was not. And after, but through the council and great discussion, they decided, you know, they established that, yes, Jesus is co-eternal with the Father he always existed with God the Father. And we know this, that by the John 1, 1, where it says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So one way that we identify Jesus as being co-eternal with the Father is that Jesus always existed as the Word of God. But at a certain point in time, the Word of God, Jesus, took on flesh through Mary and the Holy Spirit. But Arius would point to things like when Jesus was baptized, a voice from heaven is heard to say that this is my only begotten son in whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. And Jesus himself says that the Father is greater than I, which would seem to indicate that, you know, 
God the Father existed before Jesus did. And then also when Jesus is asked about, you know, when the second coming will be, Jesus says, only the Father knows the day or the hour. So these kind of things were what Arius pointed to to show that Jesus was slightly less than God the Father. And in the Catholic Church, we understand that, you know, Jesus is fully God, but he put aside part of his existence as being fully God to take on human flesh. Uh, so, like, before Jesus was born of Mary, you know, he didn't have to eat and he didn't have to wear clothes to keep his body warm, things like that. He existed outside of our time and space and therefore could go and do whatever he wanted anywhere. But when he took on flesh through Mary and the Holy Spirit, he was he made himself slightly lower than God the Father for our salvation because he came to save us through his sacrifice. So think about this. Like if you were God and you could do anything, anytime, anywhere, and then you decided to take on flesh so that you could offer yourself in sacrifice to save all the people that were sinning against God. That would be quite a tall order to ask of yourself. So we have to understand that this is the great gift that Jesus has bought us through his death and resurrection, which is his sacrifice, his infinite sacrifice for our salvation. So at the Council of Nicaea, we get the beginning of the Nicene Creed, and we confirm that Jesus is co-eternal with the Father, God from God, light from light, true God from true God. So when you're at Mass this Sunday and you're reading the Nicene Creed, think about you know, how the Council of Nicaea began to put this Nicene Creed together and why they put it together, and how it affirms that Jesus is fully God and fully man, and how he came to die for us for our salvation. And that's why we bow uh, during the part of the creed where, by the power of the Holy Spirit, he was born of the Virgin Mary. It's not that we're bowing to honor Mary. We're bowing to God because he made himself a less than God by taking on human flesh and therefore limiting himself to the time and space of our world. It's such a great gift, and we need to remember it and understand just how awesome a thing it was that Jesus did for us. So when we bow at that point while reading the creed, we are bowing to Jesus, who is God, for giving us the great gift of coming to this world to die for us. Now, after the Council of Nicaea, the 
church sent out a decree, just like at the Council of Jerusalem, and you know, shared that around the Christian and Roman Christian throughout Christianity, uh, which was you know pretty much everywhere the Roman Empire was at that time, all around the Mediterranean, and even as far north as what we now call England and Ireland and as far east as India, as far west as Portugal, and even the northern part of Africa, all the way to the Atlantic Ocean. It's hard for us to remember in, in our modern times that, the, that Christianity was all around the Mediterranean. Um, unless you really know your history, a lot of people think that... Uh, the countries that are now Muslim countries, you know, were always Muslims, but that didn't happen for another 700 years after Christianity. Well, I guess it'd be about 300 years after Christianity became legal. And even though the decree was sent out around all of Christianity, there were still those that held on to the Arian heresy and a time, and the idea that there was a time when Jesus was not. Just because people are told this is what the church teaches doesn't mean they change their mind. Just like when the Council of Jerusalem told all the Christians that they didn't have to keep the Jewish ceremonial and kosher laws, the Jewish Christians still tried to push them on the Gentile Christians. And Paul keeps telling them, we're not saved by the works of the law, we're saved by faith in Jesus. Now, the rest of the Nicene, what we now know as the Nicene Creed, was finished at the Council of Constantinople. The creed that was developed at the Council of Nicaea in 325 AD just ends with a part that says, we believe in the Holy Spirit. And at the Council of Constantinople in 381 AD, the understanding that the Holy Spirit is also part of the Trinity was also confirmed. And again, the decree from the Council of Constantinople that was sent out around Christianity, uh, a lot of people had a hard time understanding and agreeing with the idea that the Holy Spirit was also part of the Trinity. Since the word Trinity is not in the Bible, it is a theological concept that we have to come to understand by what is actually written in the Bible. And all the way back in the beginning of Genesis, it talks about how God refers to himself in a plurality, as in like more than one person. The Jews, of course, at the time of Jesus, you know, only believed in one God. And the idea that Jesus is the son of God needs to be understood in the concept of the time that it was a kingdom kind of structure where there would be a king and a king would have sons and daughters that we now call king princesses and princes. And the important thing to understand is that when a prince would go out 
into the kingdom, he represented the king. So Jesus, being the son of God, the king of the universe, he came into our world. He is a representative of God the Father. But we don't just understand him as another person or let's see, another being from God the Father. We understand that the Trinity is one God in three persons, which, again, is a very difficult theological concept to understand, and it's better to understand it in that in the negative than the positive. You know, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit are all infinitely powerful and one, but they are three individual persons. And pretty much any way that we try to explain them falls into different heresies. So we just have to recognize that they are three persons in one God and all equally capable because they are one. Now, if we look at the New Testament as a historical document and read what is recorded in it, just as historical evidence that was written very early about Jesus. Uh, we find in Matthew chapter 3, verse 17, And behold, a voice out of the heavens said, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. This is at Jesus' baptism. And in Matthew chapter 16, verse 16, Simon Peter answers Jesus by saying, You are Christ, the Son of the living God. And again, as the Son of the living God, he is God. Chapter 17, verse 5 tells us, While he was still speaking, a bright cloud overshadowed them. And behold, a voice out of the cloud said, And this is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. I believe that's from the Transfiguration. In Luke chapter 22, verse 6, it says, But from now on, the Son of Man will be seated at the right hand of the power of God. And in Luke 22, chapter 22, verse 70, it says, And they all said, Are you the Son of God then? This would be the, the high priest and the Sanhedrin. And he said to them, Yes, I am. And by using I am, that is the word that, or the title that God gave himself when he spoke to Moses on the mountain. John 1.1, we read, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And in verse 1-2, we learn that he was in the beginning with God. In John Gospel of John, chapter 5, verse 3, it says, And the Father who sent me, he has testified of me. You have neither heard his voice at any time or seen his form. So, from this we understand that God the Father has not taken on a form for us to see. And that's why, like when... Moses talks to God up on the mountain. He appears as a burning bush that doesn't burn up. 
so these manifestations of God allow us to see him and hear him even though he does not take on a regular form and that's because God is out time outside of time and space in 1st John chapter 5 verse 9 it says if we receive the testimony of men the testimony of God is greater or the testimony of God is that is this that he has testified concerning his son and back in John's Gospel chapter 8 verse 18 it says I am he who testifies about myself and the father who sent me testifies about me so we understand that you know Jesus not only claims to be God but the father also testifies that he is God in John's gospel chapter 10 verse 30 Jesus says I and the father are one and this is part of our basis for the Trinity and that Jesus and God the Father are one they're two persons but one God in Gospel of John chapter 10 verse 37 Jesus says if I do not do the works of my father do not believe me in John chapter 10 verse 38 but if I do them though you do not believe me believe the works so that you may know and understand that the father is in me and I am in the father and what Jesus is talking about here is that the miracles that he did were to prove that he was the Son of God and had the power of God as the Son of God to do miracles here in our world and only God can do miracles in the Gospel of John chapter 12 verse 45 it says he who sees me sees the one who sent me again this is confirmation on the concept of the Trinity and that Jesus is also God John chapter 14 verses 7 through 10 if you had known me you would have known my father also from now on you know him and have seen him but Philip says to him Lord show us the father and it is enough for us and Jesus says to him have I been so long with you and yet you to know me Philip he who has seen me has seen the father how can you say show us the father again this idea of the Trinity is very hard for the early Christians to understand and it's still hard for us to understand today how God can be three persons in one God in the Gospel of John chapter 16 verse 15 it says all things that the Father has done are mine therefore I said that he takes of mine and will disclose it to you so everything that we get from Jesus comes from God the Father because Jesus and the Father are one 
Now, Paul writes about Jesus as God the Father, or, well, Jesus as God. Romans chapter 1, verse 4, it says, Who was declared the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead? According to the Spirit of holiness, Jesus Christ, our Lord. So here Paul, of course, is, you know, trying to affirm with the early Christians that Jesus is God by being the Son of God and one with the Father. In Romans chapter 9, verse 5, it says, Whose are the fathers and from whom is the Christ according to the flesh, who is over all, God blessed forever. Amen. Paul writes in Colossians chapter 1, verse 15, that Jesus, he is the kingdom of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. And some Protestants will like to say that, you know, Jesus is the firstborn of all creation and Jesus is the firstborn of Mary. And that would indicate that you know, Mary had other children after that. But being firstborn is a title that would be given by Jewish men to their firstborn son, and that the bulk of their estate would go to their firstborn son. And the firstborn son is the representative of God, the, well, of the father of that family when that son goes out into the rest of the world. So by that Jewish understanding, the firstborn Jesus is the firstborn son of God and therefore represents God the Father everywhere he goes. Now in Colossians chapter 2 verse 9 it says, For in him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. So from this we understand that Jesus is fully God, but he took on flesh so that he could offer himself for our salvation. In 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, by common confession, great is the mystery of godliness. He who was revealed in the flesh was vindicated in the spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. In 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 15, it says, which he will bring about at the proper time, he who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings, the Lord of lords. In Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3, it says, and he is the radiance of his, the exact representation of his nature and upholds all things by the word of his power. When he had made purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. So, again, this talks about how Jesus has all the radiance of God the Father, but took on flesh for our salvation, and he upholds all things by the word of God, by showing his power. And he had made purification for us, 
for our sins by offering himself as a sacrifice for our sins. And then after he had completed his mission, his ministry for us here on earth, he sits down at the right hand of majesty on high. And again, we have to think about how things work in a kingdom that, you know, he who sits at the right hand of the king is the the greatest servant of the king. And that would normally be his son. It might be a minister of some sort. But the right hand of the king, the right hand position of the king is the greatest honor that can be shown to that person. In Revelation chapter 19, verse 16, it says, And on his robe and on his thigh is he has a name written, King of King, Lord of Lords. And that reflects back to First Timothy chapter 6, verse 15, where Paul writes, which he shall bring about at the proper time, he who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings, the Lord of lords. And again, for especially modern Americans where we've never had a king, uh, the king would be the highest person in the whole kingdom. But Jesus being the King of kings, you know, is even higher than any individual king here on earth. And being the Lord of lords makes him the higher, highest lord over all the other lords here on earth. From a historical view, we can see that Jesus is divine and not just a great moral teacher like Muhammad or Buddha. Now, Jesus proved that he was the Son of God, and therefore God, by performing miracles. And these miracles are recorded for us in the New Testament, where Jesus heals the centurion's servant in Matthew chapter 8, verses 5 through 13. And it is important to note here that Jesus heals the servant, not by going to where that servant was, but by healing that servant from afar. This shows God's great, awesome power. Jesus stilled the storm in Matthew chapter 8, verses 23 through 27. Jesus cured two demoniacs in Matthew chapter 8, verses 28 through 34. Jesus cured the paralytic in Matthew chapter 9, verses 1 through 8. And Jesus raises the ruler's daughter from the dead in Matthew chapter 9, verse 18 through 26. Jesus opens the eyes of two blind men in Matthew chapter 9, verse 27 through 31. Jesus loosened the tongue of a man who could not speak in Matthew chapter 9, verses 32 through 33. And Jesus restored the withered hand of a man in Matthew chapter 12, verses 10 through 13. Jesus cures a demon-possessed man in Matthew chapter 12, verse 22. 
Jesus fed at least 5,000 people in Matthew chapter 14, verse 15 through 21. Jesus healed a woman of Cana uh, in Matthew chapter 15, verses 20 through through 28. Jesus fed at least 4,000 people in Matthew chapter 15, verses 32 through 39. Jesus cured a boy who was plagued by a demon in Matthew chapter 17 through and verses 14 through 21. Jesus opened the eyes of two blind men in Matthew chapter 20, verses 30 through 34. Jesus caused a fig tree to wither in Matthew chapter 21, verses 18 through 22. In, Jesus, in Mark's gospel, it's recorded for us that Jesus cast out an unclean spirit in Mark chapter 1, verses 23 to 28. Jesus cured Peter's mother-in-law of a fever in Mark's Gospel, verse, chapter 1, verses 30 and 31. Jesus heals a leper in Mark, chapter 1, verses 40 to 45. Jesus cured a deaf and mute man in Mark, chapter 7, verses 31 to 37. Jesus opened the eyes of a blind man in Mark, chapter 8, verses 22 to 26. And Jesus performs miracles in Luke's gospel, where he there's the great hall of fish, and Jesus raised the widow's son from the dead. Jesus cured the woman of an issue of blood. Jesus cured a woman who had been afflicted for 18 years. And Jesus cured a man of dropsy. Jesus cleansed 10 lepers. And Jesus restored the ear of the high priest's servant. And Jesus rose from the dead in Luke chapter 24. In John's gospel, we learn that Jesus changed water into wine. Jesus cured the nobleman's son. Jesus heals an invalid man at the pool called Bethsaida. And Jesus opened the eyes of a man born blind. And Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead and the second great hall of fishes in John's Gospel, chapter 21. So that's it for the show today. Thanks for tuning in. If you'd like a copy of today's show notes or have a follow-up question, you can send me an email at catholicken at thefourpersons.com or look me up on Facebook. If you'd like me to have me come speak at your parish on this or many other topics, Email me at kenlitchfield61 at gmail.com or look me up on Facebook. May God bless and guide your efforts to bring the truth of the Catholic faith to the world. Thanks for tuning in. Bye.